Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and today we are talking with Anthony Flood. Anthony Flood is a native New Yorker who graduated from NYU and studied philosophy at the Graduate Center, City University of New York. His writings have been published in the Journal of American History, Front Page Magazine, LouRockwell.com, The Philosopher's Magazine, among many others. He is the author of the book, Christ, Capital, and Liberty. And he's here to talk to us today about the contents of that book. Anthony, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So um, I've got this book here on my desk here. It's got your name on it. And it is quite fascinating. And it is, it's a polemic. And I think it would be helpful for our audience to know, like, why, why is that the subtitle? Why is there, what is a polemic? And what is it that you're trying to do in this book? Well, uh, it's, it's argumentative, and it comes out of a particular spat I had with uh, Catholic traditionalist uh, Christopher Ferrara, who wrote a, a scurrilous attack on Austro-Libertarianism called The Church and the Libertarian. Uh, I can go into how that happened in a second, but basically a polemic, in other words, this is not a treatise. Although some of the chapters may look like they belong in a treatise, uh, it actually comes out of an actual battle that I had with him. He was attacking me online, and I was responding on my blog, Anarcho-Catholic, which I've since taken down because all those posts are now in uh, in this book. So it's not, I'm not pretending that it has this uh, ahistorical a, a significance, you know, like, like man economy and state, which will live on for the ages. This comes out of a particular uh, dispute based on his attack, uh, which he, um, let me back up that sentence a bit. I do, I do give an account of how this came about in the early chapters, but for the benefit of, of, of your audience, I'll, I'll, I'll summarize it. He and I were in a meeting room listening to this traditionalist uh, bishop from the SSP, Exodus Society of Pius X. And he came up to me and started, uh, I, I don't think haranguing is too strong a word, uh, asked me why, why, why did I have this. He somehow knew I was a libertarian. Like I was an Austrian. A libertarian. What's your position on the living wage? What's your position on the just price? He kept going on and on. And he's a writer. Christopher Ferrara is a, is a prolific writer, pro-life attorney. I would say a good guy, okay? But Austro-libertarianism doesn't fit his narrative of what Christians should be supporting in the realm of uh, political economy. So I said, Chris, you know, we can talk about this anytime. Email me. So he starts emailing me when going back and forth on this. I said, Chris, I, you know, life is short. If you publish something on this, I will reply. If you publish a book on this, I will reply. A couple of years go by, I get a call from my mother saying, Christopher Ferrara came out with this new book, The Church of the Libertarian. My face, and there goes my next year of my life. So I, I, start, I, I said, I, I'm a man of my word. What am I going to do? Hide under the table? No. I started blogging. Uh, again, this will all be obvious once someone has the book in their hands, but I'm going to entice them to get put put such book in their hands. Uh, I start off, if you look at the opening chapters, if you say, why is he starting with that? Why is he starting with setting the table? Well, part one is setting the table. Two, part two is main course. 
part three is dessert and leftovers. But setting the table starts off with a question of tone, in few things, charity, a question of competency, sound bites, panic buttons, and scare quotes. I'm going into his methodology. I'm going into how he conducts controversy. And I found that to be the most annoying and outraging, outrageous thing about how he uh, went about attacking a school of thought, which is not hard to find and not hard to do research on the Austrian School of Economics, Ludwig von Mises Institute, gets all their stuff out there for free. Their fattest tomes can be downloaded for nothing. He did so little research on his opponents, and he slandered. Basically, it's a slanderous book. It's a piece of propaganda. And I felt like I had to set the st- setting the table. I had to set the stage for what I'm about to do uh, in detail in the ensuing chapters. Uh, I think if you pointed out in your little outline for me, why is the principle of charity important? Well, I don't think I really have to explain that. That's like a, a, a leading question. Um, since Christians believe in charity or love and mutual respect as being part of the way we go about dealing with people, including our enemies, my goodness, our rivals within the Christian community ought to be treated with at least that much respect and you should not misrepresent them. You should not suppress evidence about their position. You should not uh, uh, distort their position to fit your narrative. And that's exactly what he did. I want to stop here and let you ask a question because I don't want to go off on a on a tangent. I, I think I answered a little bit of what you're looking for. But. Yeah. Well, I think the the spirit of the book is definitely argumentative and, and not in the sense of like it's, I mean, I'm sure there's passion behind it, of course, but it's not like it's this uh, shouting match per se. Although, you know, the reason I had that question in there about charity has to do with, it seems as though this is a very difficult thing to do. I think generally speaking in ways for people who read views that they just find repulsive or maybe they're just like, I can't believe they don't believe in such things or they do believe in these things or whatever. And it's for some reason kind of difficult. You know, I've read a lot of anti-libertarian arguments and the stuff that you quote for Ferrara is like, really? You you think that's what we believe? Like, it's almost like you're like, you're, you're stating the opinion of somebody who is not me, you know? And right. so, you know, and of course, everybody has their own slight, slightly different views or whatever. But I think the tone that you set is sort of the right argumentative tone. Like, how do you engage with somebody whose work is not charitable in every way that it could be or hardly at all? And what does it look like to sort of address those issues in and of themselves? So there's a, there's like, you, you actually deal with the uncharitableness. Like you didn't just like let that slide and be like, all right, well, let me take what he says and, and I'll refute him. Like there is, there's the, there's the meta analysis of the way in which he approaches things. And, you know, do you, do you find that he's particularly egregious in this way? Or, I mean, is this pretty typical yes. of, of anti-Austrians? No, he's, he's, he's very combative in general when he's fighting for various things within the traditionalist Catholic uh, movement. But he saw me uh, as somehow I got. I'm going to deal with Tony. I'm going to like, like convert me to his you know distributism. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know what, what how he saw me. I don't know why he didn't attack me in, in his book. Like why why did you pass me up? And then I said, if you're going to pass up Father James Sadowski, who knew Murray since the early '60s, you know it's, it's a small matter to overlook Tony Flood. Uh, and you know how do you ignore James Sadowski? You know private property and private ownership. I go on and on about James Sadowski. In fact, on my website, I have a 
I reproduced uh, David Gordon's uh, memorial at the time that Father Sadowski died. Um, there's a number of Austro, Austro-Catholics, not just Austro-Christians, but, but, but Catholics, uh, Joe Sobrin. And uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't deal with this. He makes fun of so-called Austrian scholars. They're real scholars. They're world-renowned scholars with, 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 with advanced degrees have written these profound books, and you don't pay attention to any of that, Mr. Ferraro. Why do you do that? See, this, the subtitle is a polemic. It's not a debate. I'm using the platform of my blog and now the book. The defunct, the deleted uh, anarcho-Catholic blog is now lives on in this book. That's my platform. I want to preserve the research that I had done. I didn't want that to go up in, up in cyber flames. I really wanted to preserve the stuff that I did. But you raised something about how do we argue with people in general. We're finding that in the political uh, arena today. That's come up. You know, this, I wrote this before the age of Trump. We, we, we now know what that's like. Every, every news show you put on is, what's it going to be like around the dinner table at, at, during yeah, the holidays? Yeah. But I wasn't thinking about that. But this particular spat I had with Ferrara has some, there's some universal themes in there. I mean, if two Christians can't have a civil conversation about Austrian economics, then what can, what can we talk about? You know, would you, would you, am I a heretic? Would you put me to the stake? I mean, what, what, what's, what do you have in store? So he has this hankering for a traditional, for the Middle Ages and distributism. I don't know if we want to get into that. I'm not an expert in distributism. I can never quite figure out what they're for. Like if you look at the Wikipedia article on distributism, it says it's an economic theory asserting that the world's productive assets should be widely owned rather than concentrated. That's not an economic theory. <laughs> That's an ethical art. What does that have to do with economics? Yeah. Like this is your this is the banner on which to which you want. You or things ought to be done this way. Well so what? Why? And by the way, what's your transitional program? I think libertarians like to discuss the, the transitional program to a a less stated society, like the way socialists think of a transitional program to the dictatorship of the proletariat. What's the distributist transitional? What do you want to do? Going to take people's property and just redistribute it? How do people acquire property justly in a distributist you know, polity? They seem to have a an, an aesthetic beef with modern society. You know, it's ugly. You know, the, the critique of gigantism mm-hmm. in, in the industrial world, and, you know, it's yucky. Because uh, you had capital, you had capital way before the Industrial Revolution. You have land, labor, and capital all through human history. Well, most of human history. What we call capitalism, as I as I quote, had this great passage by Hayek. I probably can't put my finger on it now. He says, "Look, we're probably stuck with the term, but it's a misnomer, you know." And it comes really out of the it comes out of the anti-capitalist camp. We're going to call this transitory mode of production capitalism, right? And we want to put a, an expiration date on it. What are you talking about? It, you know, you, that's why I'm getting a theoretical chapter, which you said you wanted to focus on, uh, chapter 20, uh, based on my own anthropology, coming well, not my own, but Christian anthropology, if people were all, you know, created image bearers, uh, we are the nodes of these ties that makes up the network we call the market. Okay? And, and we make exchanges. And that's the way I, you have to have an anthropology, you have to have a theory of man. And, uh, I think Murray... I'm not sure what Murray Rothbard, I call him Murray because I was his friend for the last 12 years of his life. Uh, I'm not even sure what Murray's anthropology was. He's like, are you a Lockean? Are you a Thomist? Only a genius like Murray could eclectically mash Locke and Thomas together. You know, nobody else, no lesser mind could do that. Uh, but that's what he did. He left certain questions. He was agnostic about many questions, including the existence of God. 
And so then he rationalistically churned out the right of a, the alleged right of a woman to to an abortion. I'm really going off far afield here. Uh, so see that era, I call it the lamentable era, the first appendix of my book, Murray Rothbard's lament, lamentable era about abortion. Uh, Ferraro would seize on that, ignore all the Catholic and Christian libertarians who are against abortion, wholeheartedly, you know, fervently anti-abortion, and just wants to focus on that and think that a libertarian, uh, the victory of libertarianism would lead to, uh, you know, leaving babies out on the street like an ancient Sparta or something. Um, he, uh, I want you to, I want you to rein me in because I'm, I'm starting to become a motor mouth here. Fo- help me, <laughs> no, it's help all me good. focus. Well, I, what, did, what did I, what did I trigger in your mind now that we, that we could pursue? Um, I mean, to me, I think the 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 essential battle between people who have a vision for society that has certain outcomes and the like you were talking about the transitional state of things and like, mm-hmm. well, what are you what are you going to do? Like all all of your, I mean, my guess is that behind your your rhetorical question there is, well, behind everything that you could possibly do right now, there's there's an inherent violence to things. And then alongside that, yeah. there are people like Ferrara who are uncharitable toward, like, they don't even give due diligence to the 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 context right. of things that are being said. So for instance, you, you know, it's pretty, pretty, uh, I guess the respectful thing to do when you're arguing with somebody is to, like take the best of their arguments and work with them rather than the least, you know, yeah. the, you know, the least convincing. So I, I don't know. I mean, you could go on, we, we could go on to that, into that, but I, well, you know, this occurred, occurred to me. What I try to show in the book is that every single, without, without exception, every single charge he made can be refuted voluminously. He, he writes off a bunch of intellectuals who didn't deal with, with uh, his, his Kevin Carson. Yeah. Article after article against Kevin Carson, detailing him, devoting a whole issue of journal libertarian studies to going over his, you know, his attempt to marry um, Austrian economic theory with the labor theory of value of all things. Like, it's less laughable. Why, why would you want to do that? It fits Chris Ferrara's uh, narrative because they're very focused on labor, the role of labor. They have this this wishy-washy view: what is labor the laborer, or is it this economic category? And this all goes back to uh, Rerum Novarum's late nineteenth-century encyclical. See, that's that's where Christopher Ferrara got his marching orders mm. in Catholic social theory, which, as far as I'm concerned, is warmed over social democracy. You scratch a European social democrat or a Christian democrat, and they're distributist. And they say, it says right here that I've got to be a distributist. Yeah, right. So that regiments Christopher Ferrara's thinking on this on this topic. Well, I you know, I can imagine some of our listeners thinking, okay, well, if this guy is so wrong about what Austrians believe, you know, I mean, and what we haven't mentioned here is that he also really takes Tom Woods out of context in Tom Woods' church yeah. in the market. And, you know, you kind of demonstrate some of those things. Like if this guy is just so off his base on representing uh Austrio Austro-libertarianism. How influential is this guy? I mean, is he even worth listening to? I mean, I, obviously oh, the well, answer is no, but I mean, like, why do some people think he is? Because, uh, again, within certain circles, uh, he is a Catholic traditionalist intellectual. Uh, again, you got the Catholic Church, you got the Catholic Church in America, and you got the Catholic traditionalists, another subset. And EWTN, have you heard of that? Eternal Word yeah, yeah. Broadcasting Network. Okay, so he's he was on there a lot, but I think he he soured on on them. He thought they were a little too squishy on when it came to Catholic traditionalism. He's very big on 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 the Fatima 
the alleged Fatima revelation in 1917. These are his hobby horses. These are the things he 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 goes on the on the on the war path over. Uh, he writes for various Catholic publications, which I'm not even going to bother to look up if you can find him. He's he's a big fish in a little goldfish bowl. Okay, he is a big fish there. He's not a bad writer. His heart's in the right place sometimes. Uh, and again, he's a pro-life lawyer. Okay, so if you get arrested for uh, protesting outside abortion clinic, call Chris Ferrara. Okay, he's he's that guy. I got to give him. I got to give him his props for that. That's what he is. He's a Catholic activist, but he has this vision of uh, of, of Catholic social theory that I think Austrian economics is knocked into a cocked hat. And if you want to knock that down, then do due diligence, as you said. Read the stuff that's been said in answer to this. Um, he probably, when he's, if he knows about this book, he said, oh, Tony, why are you doing this? They said, well, you know, you started it. Nah, 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 nah. You started it by coming out <laughs> with that scholar's book. And I said I would answer it. And my blog was, was hacked at some point. I said, I'm so glad I, I preserved all those posts offline. I'm going to come out with a book because, by golly, I'm impressed. I'm impressing myself. Who wrote that paragraph? Well, I did. You know, I, I'm looking back at it after the distance of eight years, and it's almost like a new book to me. It's like a lot of interesting theoretical stuff about uh, you may want to get into eudaimonism, flourishing. You, you picked out those two pages. Um, it was page 123 and 124. And when I tried it, I waxed a little. I waxed theoretical there. I waxed theoretical in a few other places, too. Uh, and, and I think that's something that could survive the debate, could survive this little polemic. Yeah, yeah. And, and take with it to other contexts, not just this narrow little playpen. Yeah. Let me take a slightly off topic because I'm just kind of curious here. Has he dealt with any of the writings of Michael Novak? No, I, I, no, I don't think so okay. at all. I, I would have to do a, a search on that. I, I can almost imagine what his position that would be because Michael Novak was not an Austrian right. economist. He's basically a democratic capitalism and all that. I think you would find... Uh, for Ferrara's taste, Michael Novak would be a, a, a liberal Catholic, believe it or not. Yeah. Conservative socially, but uh, not, not what we need. <laughs> and what we need is a return to you know, the Catholic Church. Right, yeah. So, you know, he's a big, you know, he's anti-Austrian libertarian. What are, what are some of Ferrara's major misgivings about libertarianism? And then, you know, maybe you can deal with, you know, you can pick your favorites, uh, maybe just talk about how you deal with them because i think they're pretty some of them are are common to the anti-libertarian uh argumentation and you know i think it'd be helpful to to hear how you deal with them his distinctive anti-libertarianism again comes out of a certain ethical stance at coming out of his traditionalist catholic view of the world okay so libertarianism like liberalism in general and the french revolution and all that that's that's a nightmare yeah, everything went downhill from the French Revolution and even the American Revolution. Although he's some, you know, he's he's somewhat partial to the Constitution, being an American lawyer. But basically, it's all one big mistake two hundred years ago. And this modern modern liberalism called libertarianism, and its uh, its rationale, the Austrian School of Economics, uh, is just amplifying or encouraging or reinforcing a basic error about. Who we are as human beings, why we're on earth, and what we're supposed to do. We give glory to God through the Catholic Church, form you know, Catholic social relations, have a Catholic monarchy, I guess. I think he's sort of a monarchist. And anything that catches fire, like libertarianism, okay? And now we got socialism. So I'm sure he's, he's, he's 
taking out his axe for the socialists, which are now rising up on all sides. But the uh, the rise of libertarianism since the well, we go back to the 60s, 70s, 80s, but with the Rothbard Rockwell report and and this excitement that really bothered him. That really that really got under his under his skin, and he wanted to like quash squash this bug if he could, and he just went about it all the wrong way. I'm not sure if I can pinpoint what he has specifically against libertarianism. This is all these, I'm flipping through the book, trying to find a, they're so embedded in, in the chapter. So when you say, as I say, what are his major misgivings? It's one big misgiving. He's, 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 his hair is standing, his hair is on fire. You know? <laughs> it almost seems to get in the way a little bit because he can't even, you know, he can't even get the argument fully developed before he refutes any something. Right. He misrepresents the sources as I say early on, he um, he quotes for the history, the history of economic He quotes some unpublished paper by some doctoral student in Israel. That's the best you can do, Mr. Ferrara? She never got her degree. She doesn't even, at least she listed on some resume somewhere. All the stuff that's freely available on the history of the, of the Austrian School of Economics, that's the best you can do? Before you go, before you're off to the races, uh, and you can't—it's not like you can't call these people up and have a conversation. I mean, they're all glad to pretty, pretty easy to reach and talk it's to you. It's a click away. Yeah, you know, uh, and and oh, here's the big here's the here's the really big thing. The biggest slander is that he's basically accusing Austro Austrian economists in general, I guess Catholic Austrian economists in particular, of being prize fighters for the bourgeoisie to borrow a phrase from Karl Marx in 1873, first volume of Capital, the afterward. You know, uh, in fact, I want to see if I could find that, that quote here. That was, a, that was such a delightful, has, it has that, that rhetorical ring. Oh, I'm not going to find it fast enough. Um, he sees Austrian economists, Austrian economists and their lackeys as apologizing, I think apologetics for the existing state of things. And he does not take our disclaimers, our our uh, qualifications seriously. In fact, one one passage that he loves. This is why he loves Kevin Carson. He loves this. I think this is why he loves him the most here. Uh, vulgar libertarianism. Okay, because this is this is Ferrara quoting Kevin Carson. And just for to pause here for a second, Kevin Carson is uh, explained for he's our a listeners. Mutualist, he's a mutualist libertarian. Mutualism goes back to Proudhon. So he's a kind of anarchist. But again, he wants to, he's a, how do I describe him? Well, Carson is trying to, is, is arguing in favor of libertarianism, but from a different vantage point. On some level. Yeah. Because even Kevin Carson knows that Murray Rothbard was against crony capitalism. See, but he goes, but, but Carrara loves this, this quote. Vulgar, this is, this is a Ferrara quotation of Kevin Carson. Vulgar libertarian apologists for capitalism use the term free market in an equivocal sense. They seem to have trouble remembering. Now, I'm going to run into three, three little slurs in this one little paragraph. They seem to have trouble remembering from one moment to the next whether they're defending actually existing capitalism or free market principles. So we get the standard boilerplate article arguing that the rich can't get rich at the expense of the poor because, quote, that's not how the free market works, end quote implicitly assuming this is a free market. When prodded, they'll grudgingly admit that the present system is not a free market, and that includes a lot of state intervention on behalf of the rich. Last sentence. But as soon as they think they can get away with it, 
they go right back to defending the wealth of existing corporations on the basis of free market principles. So we've got this, you know, as, you know, are, are we sneaky Pete's? You know, what are we? You know, and 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 you can even Kevin Carson knows that Murray Rothbard said that one of the greatest uh, mistakes of so many pro-free market people is to defend big business. So big business is basically t- turning America into a fascist country. Okay, I don't mean in the Ocasio-Cortez sense, but it's a classical fascist country. That's the the the, uh, the grabbing of the state, the levers of power by the rich and powerful through the corporations using the legal the legal mechanisms of the state is a disaster for libertarianism. And Barrar overlooks that. Kevin Carson overlooks that. And we're not we're all on the same side when it comes to people who use the state for private advantage against the market. Nothing could be clearer. And, and so Carson just engages in this um, in its misrepresentation and, and slander. I'm not sure if I'm scratching where you're at. Oh, that. yeah. No, fine. this is that that's all good. Um, do you know if he's responded to Does he know about your book? Has he responded? I mean, I know it was published in, this year. I haven't heard anything about it. Uh, if he if he does know, I don't think he's it's in his interest to start all that over again. Remember, this big book, which is almost bigger than his book, uh, only went through half of his book. And then I decided after a year or so, you know, life is short. I spent the rest of my life critiquing Ferrari. And then he came out with another book on on liberty, the god that failed. I said no, <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to. If you go through, if you go through these these 350 pages, you're going to know what I would say against these other stuff because he just repeats the same stuff over yeah. and over again. He's basically preaching to the choir. Yeah, yeah. You should so. you should mail him a copy. See if see if he'll uh, take care of it. <laughs> oh, it's a sleeping dog lie. But if he wants to start, there's the book. Yeah, yeah. and we'll get back into it again. Yeah, but it's a whole different world. The world of 2019, 2020 is so different from the world of 2010. It's amazing. In so many ways, it's different. The atmosphere is different, and uh, you know, he and I might be in the same uh, gulag. The way things are going, (laughs) (laughs) we'll be cellmates in (laughs) Bernie's workers' paradise. Oh my, that's funny. Hey everybody, Bob Murphy here. Wanted to let you know that on April 20th of 2020, I am going to be debating at the Soho Forum in New York City. And the topic is going to be whether Christians should support free market capitalism. So, of course, I'm going to be in the affirmative. My opponent, Tony Campola, is going to be in the negative. If you're interested, I encourage you to get tickets sooner rather than later. Go to libertarianchristians.com slash debate and use the promo code LCI25, all lowercase, in order to get 25% off the ticket price. So, again, that's libertarianchristians.com slash debate. Use promo code LCI25, all lowercase. Hope to see you there. So let's talk about the the one issue here about uh, eudaimonia, human flourishing, uh, because that is of a particular interest to us at LCI because it is it is our theme for 2020. And Great. we want more Christian libertarians to talk about human flourishing and understand what it means. So, you know, in, in the midst of this whole argument, this polemic that you've set out in this book, you know, you you do have this chapter, this section on human human flourishing, and it's in the it's actually in the the title of the chapter. It is chapter twenty. It is called "What Is the Free Market?" So I, I think it might be helpful to frame like why are we talking about human flourishing in a chapter called "What Is the Free Market?" And, and I think that's pretty important. Yeah, um, we are it was upon you know self reflection upon thinking about what are we doing. It is a philosophical proposition which can be debated but it has a long, noble history. We reflect on what we're doing when we buy a cup of coffee, 
when we go to a movie, when we take our family out, when we uh, pray in our solitude or collectively, we're trying to add value to our life. And we're trying to do it in a way that's coherent so that we don't uh, eat at the expense of taking care of our family. We don't exercise at the expense of, of being good to our neighbors. We have to do all these different things. It's not one thing. The good life, we have this implicit notion of the good life. We're good life seekers. And the good life is not one thing. It's many things. Or it's a one in the many problem. And we, we seek all or nearly all of the goods that make for a good life. We go down the list, food, shelter, clothing, you know, companionship of various levels. You know, C.S. Lewis's Four Loves, various kinds of love that we need. And uh, we, we need to integrate these into a, into a whole. We may not talk like that, but everybody in my neighborhood, I'm sure, is trying to do that. They won't theorize about it, but they're seeking a good life, which includes a good life for those that they, that they love, whom they love. And we have to reflect on what makes a good life possible. Of course, <laughs> virtuous people, nice starter, but there's also the good of order. And I make a distinction, I think, in that chapter about uh, the goods that satisfy an immediate need, like a movie or a book or uh, good, what did I say, good, good food or whatever. And then the order that makes that possible on a regular basis. And the good of order is not a sensible, consumable good. I, I can't buy the good of, of order on the market. The good of order is presupposed by everything I do on the market. And we have to, we have to make that an explicit object of, uh, of, of attention. And uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Honoring? Uh, that's the word. A val- a valorization. Valori- I'm, I'm, losing my, I'm losing my vocabulary in my old age. We, we, need, to, we need to make an explicit object of, of attention and honor in our uh, going about seeking a good life. That's the political dimension. Mm. What kind of order what we seek? And seeking a good order is different from seeking a good hamburger. You know, it's, it's a different kind of thing. It requires our intellect and our reason, our reflecting upon uh, the grounds for something. And the particular element I want to add, because this has been my real interest in the last couple of years, where are we standing? Using standing metaphorically, where are we standing when we ask those questions? And I don't get much of that from Mises and from Rothbard. We just, it's a lot of taking for granted. And basically, they're feeding off of Christians, Christian historical and social capital. You know, you're creating the image of God. Hi, I'm God. You're not. This is the world. And this is how the world works. And I said so here in this book. Okay. Mm. You, get, you get your marching orders, you, your parts list of the universe uh, from the Bible, let's say. And that was all overthrown. Right? Christopher Ferrara has like a half a point there. That was all overthrown. Now we're just being strict, strict scientists. And now how shall we go about knowing? Do we open up our eyes and look at all the sense phenomena coming in our ears and heads? Or do we start with logic? And there's the eternal dialectic going all the way back to Parnamenides and, and Heraclitus, the one and the many. You see, sense, sense data or logic. And modern man can't put those two things together. And I think that's where Christian revelation comes in. I'm racing through this because I know we have only a short right. time. The question that I was raising about eudaimonia, which is a Greek word, not a Hebrew, not, not, a, not a New Testament Greek word, I don't think, is, is fallen man, this, this is where the Christian element comes in, how does fallen man go about constructing a theory of the good life in the context of knowing that we're sinners? So we got this warp, this warp working, working its way through the world and in ourselves. How do we overcome that? To what, 
what are our prospects for overcoming that enough to create a, a society where humans can flourish? I'm more skeptical about that than ever before. I'm, I'm, I'm more pessimistic, I think I should say, uh, almost at the point of despair, and I don't like being there, being in that state. But you know, we go about our business anyway. We comment on the news. We, 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 are we managing decline? Are we just recording decline? Uh, in our theory, theorizing, in our holding of conventions, and our publishing of articles and books, and having wonderful conversations like this, you know, what are our prospects for having a conversation with whom? Whom are we having this conversation with? Who's listening? Uh, this sounds so airy. I mean, I'm living in New York City, where there's been a bunch of anti-Semitic attacks in the last week, and here I am talking about eudaimonia. <laughs> this hmm. it takes a certain amount of attention to say, no, this is why we have to think about that. Because there's certain people who do not have a clear understanding of what the purpose of life is, what makes for a good life. And it's this hatred, you know, uh, on every side here and, and, and social decline. So to raise the topic of, of the good life takes special doing. I'm glad you guys over at LCI are, are attempting to do that. I'm starting to think I'm start, I, I'm getting a sense that I'm starting to ramble. So rein me in, Doug. Yeah, no, it's all good. Uh, I, I think the... Ah, oh, man, I think about this a lot because I don't understand why people don't see human flourishing as requiring a bare minimum of individual liberty. Hmm. Um, and they don't even seem to pay lip service to it. It's almost like, well, in common good or human flourishing or, you know, the well-being of the community uh, is more important than the individual liberty of, of certain people. And I think what they mean is, what if you interpret this, uh, if I were to interpret it, maybe uncharitably, but maybe it's just they, it's their veneer, is the goals I have for society versus the goals you have for society. And it's not really about individual individuals, because I think if you if you oh. kind of peel the onion back for them, it's like, well, do you think that this individual deserves a, a certain amount of freedom or or a lot of freedom even? And they'll say, well, of course, of course. Um, so it doesn't seem to me that the the argument in favor of human flourishing, I don't understand why more people don't talk about individual liberty. Um, maybe just because they think that that means a whole bunch of things they don't agree to, but it, it certainly means a bare minimum of individual liberty. Well, I think, what, I think you're raising an excellent point. Thanks for steering me back to that because that's the, that's the issue. We, we, we don't permit each other that freedom. You see, it's not just liberty. I make a distinction. I got it from Lonergan. Essential freedom, the freedom we have by nature, and effective freedom, uh, which might be more constricted. And what effective freedom will we politically allow our neighbor? Not necessarily freedom for me, but freedom for they. Even if I disagree with you, where do you cross the line where you say, no, 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 you don't have the right to, you know, like freedom, the whole pro-choice movement? No, that, does, that baby does not lie within your sphere of, of morally permissible choices with respect mm -hmm. to yeah. life. So people have a, a variable notion of liberty. It varies from on a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah, I may offend you, but you may not offend me. Being offended is like this. That's the mortal sin. So, and we will we will take away your liberty if you peaceably uh, say something that they think will create a, a, a threatening atmosphere. I forget the word they use on the campuses. An unsafe oh oh uh, safe space safe spaces and all that but that's yeah we can laugh about that but it's dead deadly serious it's yeah. deadly serious I want to know I want to know what they would say if I said I'm triggered by safe spaces <laughs> right <laughs> but, 
The problem with that is that they're not really interested in the dialectical niceties of that kind of a, you know, if you go up to a yeah. skeptic and say, well, I know that I know nothing. You say, oh, well, that's interesting. I am contradicting myself. He's not going to punch you in the face with somebody from anti yeah. Antifa would. They dropped it. Yeah. It's as simple as that. So uh, my, the question that's been bothering me for the last year or so is if I can't have a conversation with you, what am I left with? See, do I just get on my knees and pray? Do I arm myself against you? What am I yeah, opting? Right. Well, with the, the idea of a, of a, flour, a society in which human beings flourish, uh, that's a wonderful thing. And, and we should we should nail it down and describe it in detail. What are the goods that every good life requires? And listing all and see how complete we can make the list and how do we balance them so we don't we balance yeah. them anything. But as you're dealing with a barbarian enemy, how yeah. do you how do you then have that conversation? I, I think the how is really important because I think that's part of the human flourishing. Is like how do we how do we how not only how do we get there because it's because there's a lot of flourishing happening, but how yeah. is it that human flourishing is accomplished? Yes is almost more, I wouldn't say more important. I think it's equally as important as what it is that we're hoping to achieve or what, or maintain. So there are, I, I would say that it's, I think it's a failure to acknowledge human flourishing in the present as if human flourishing were just this thing that's out there in the future that we haven't achieved yet. Okay. Um, because there's a lot of human flourishing that is happening and it's happening amidst states of uh, human non-flourishing. You know, we are flourishing in a number of ways. Individuals can flourish in some areas and not in others. Communities can flourish in some areas and not in others. There are, you know, there's communities in the United States and around the world that are flourishing. And then there, there are those that are not. So there are there are conditions under which human flourishing can happen. Hmm. And how we do it is probably the most important question because, you know, it doesn't matter what you're getting. I mean, you know, I've, I've often... I've often said, and this is a, it's kind of a crude way of saying it, like there's a really, really simple solution to eliminating poverty, and that's by eliminating everybody who's poor. And no <laughs> one would ever, no one would go for that, right. obvious for clear and obvious reasons. Right. But if you wanted to eliminate poverty, you could just do that. But no one's going for that. So there's clearly a boundary line of like, well, here's what we cannot do. And I think that's where libertarianism has has this sort of like, no, this is the line you cannot cross because then it it, it crosses the boundary of disrupting the I, I guess the telos of of what we're all aiming for. I just I, I think it's not only uh, retailing for the for your audience instances of human flourishing, and I'd be interested to see those too. And I'll probably tool around your site and find great articles showing that. I mean, you. You show on a case-by-case -case basis, okay. But I think you're concerned on the one hand that it's not systematic. We don't seem to have a systematic way of producing human flourishing. It almost is accidental. Oh, you hear these people in, in, in Italy. I think Christopher Ferrara has this YouTube video which he's sitting in his outdoor cafe. He says, this is distributism. It's all jail. That's distributism. Let's all get tickets to, you know, to Rome. <laughs> and sit in the cafe and see what they're doing. These people are growing that food over there, and Joe over here, uh, Giovanni, he's making the tools for the farmer. Okay, that's a very low scale kind of thing, and maybe that's flourishing and it works. And I would defend to the death their right to engage in that kind of lifestyle uh, peacefully. I'm concerned, Doug, with the um, the threat, the threat to human flourishing, in which this is not an academic discussion. They'll just write it off. This is an academic discussion about how how ought we live our lives when you're under when you're under threat from people who who do not even care about. It. They're they're so 
illiterate. I mean, I grew up in, in the 70s and 80s, and we had all these debates. I come out of Marxism. We never got to that. If you have a question, you know, how did you get into economics and philosophy? Well, I broke with Stalinism, you know, almost 50 years ago. So that's a whole story about how, how did I wind up in Murray Rothbard's camp and beyond. But we had civil discussions about politics and, 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 and economic theory. Uh, do you think Ocasio-Cortez cares about the internal contradictions of capitalism? Come to bore her to tears. She's not just that, that critique. She's, she's, it's all about intersectionality, race, gender. And she's very arrogant. She, she, she's uh, an example of the thing that I fear the most. She doesn't have this wonderful theory that I haven't, got, I haven't taken the time to consider. This is just raw power. So that's my concern about the topic of raising the topic of eudaimonism in this context. Yeah, I think it's, I think you have a legitimate fear there. Do, do you think there's, you think though that it poses an opportunity for people like us who believe that there are conditions that, re, that are required for human flourishing to happen to, to use this as a tool to bring up those pieces that, that people like AOC are missing? Oh, grab, grab the opportunity uh, I'm not sure what the probability is that it'll 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 connect. It'll take, as I used to say. Yeah. So you're a little less optimistic than I am. I'm less optimistic. I'm not total total despair. Uh, you know, I, my touchstone has been looking at people like uh, those conservatives on campus, and they're fighting the good fight. But I don't know what the what the balance of power is. I really don't know what the balance of power is. We're, uphold, we're, we're holding up the uh, the banner you know, of reasonable discussion in a world in which that's not. I mean, you can do it. You have to do what you have to do. If your values yeah. say you have to. You know, God tells you, you know, come let us reason together. Well, by golly, I'm going to reason as much as I can until I get uh, you know until I get hanged. But uh, what's the prospect of being hanged? As 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 what is it was at uh, Samuel Johnson, the prospect of being hanged in a fortnight concentrates the mind wonderfully. Well, my mind has been concentrated wonderfully for the last couple of years, you know, and we've mm. got Trump in office, you know, standing outside Starbucks with the club while I'm trying to discuss Austrian business cycle theory with, with, with my fellow customer. That's what it's come down to. Is, this, is the area for conversation, is the space for rational discourse protected sufficiently? And so we assume that it is, and we go, we, we'll, we'll assume that it is until we're proven until proven otherwise, yeah. that's all we can do. But yeah. I had a much, I had a much more robust, optimistic sense. You know, when you're around Murray, Murray was the eternal optimist. He, he would, he would tell you stories in history where things look really bleak. You know, to the Black Death, and I was, I was bleak. I was not a good time for libertarianism. You know, but so he always saw the bright side of everything. That's maybe just his per, the way he was wired. But I really wonder how he would, um, how he would assess. Uh, the current state of political discourse uh, today. Yeah, I mean, I think you're raising really important points. I think I have focused very much on the progress and in innovation in certain areas. You know, it's at the end of a decade here. You know, you and I are recording this right at the beginning of 2020, and yeah. we are looking back at a decade. You know, everybody's talking about the last decade has brought this, et cetera, et cetera. And there's just so much to be thankful for. On the one hand, yet on the other, what you're saying here is that the conditions under which we're able to have conversations and debates have devolved in a ways that are threatening at, at worst and disconcerting at best. Yes. And and I think those are things you know definitely worthy of 
worthy of being concerned about. So I, th- I guess part of the debate, or so not the debate, part of the tactic is going to be to how do we raise that standard of conversation so that there is a, so it's actually a safe space rather than the people who are speaking truth don't feel threatened by those who are just seeking power. Yes. Yes, I mean I that would be that would be the real that would be the real you know definition of a safe space is that you know people like us aren't being threatened with power. Yeah, you can't write off the prospects for liberty. You may not ethically write off the prospects for liberty prematurely. That would be a sin. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So yeah. Off. Yeah. Don't do it until the curtain comes down. You keep fighting for every last second minute you have to make the case to somebody. And leave the rest to God. You know, he's, he's, he's in control. But I, you know, down here on the ground, you know, <laughs> we, we're, uh, we'll know one day. One day, I think I have a, my own dispensational view of the future. We're all resurrected in the kingdom. We'll have to get to ask, hey, what, what was that all about? Here's what it was all about. We'll, we'll, we'll go to school. We'll go to school in the kingdom learning what that was all about. <laughs> but right now, I think, I think this is a time of God's silence, a relative silence. Uh, doesn't say he's not acting, but he's not. He's not the voice, you know, on Mount Sinai. Yeah. In writing writing tablets with, the, with his finger. So that's another epistemological question. What is our, you know, if you have a Christian view of history, what's the meaning of this particular time, a dispensation? What, it's different from, it's different from what came before. There's something coming after, it'll be different. But we're in a particular epistemological situation. We're shut up to certain revelations that we accept. And how much can we infer from them? And using our reasoning, which the Bible tells you, because you, it tells you this is a worldview in which in which reasoning makes sense. This is my apologetics, uh, inner, my inner apologetics guy speaking. In what world does sense making make sense? You mm. See, and the atheists and all the Marxists and all they don't, they don't know what you're talking about. Go away, go away, Christian. I've got work to do. You know, well, the scientists get away, go away. I have work to do. I don't know how I do it. I just do. No, if you're a truly critical, reflective person, you reflect on the conditions under which you're able to engage in theory. Okay, you, know, you can fight for a good life or whatever. So, given that the Christian worldview is the only thing that makes sense of sense making, that's my that's what I'm holding on to. I still don't know eschatologically what's going to happen tomorrow or next week. See, so I'm in that in between state, and that's mm, part that's yeah. part of my growth, you know, as as a believer. Yeah. We can get into that maybe in a future conversation because I think yeah, that might be that might be too far afield for this topic. But yeah, you know, you mentioned that the the book is now what was a blog that has been taken yeah. down. Or is there though a place where where our listeners can find you online? Oh yes, uh, just don't forget my middle initial, Anthony G. Flood. If you manage to type in Anthony Flood, you'll see my old site, which has a lot of interesting articles on there. I'm not taking it down, but it'll redirect you to anthonygflood.com. And you can see the list of my books there. You can look at my publications. You know, I'm a struggling uh, freelance uh, writer and editor and proofreader and researcher. Uh, so I'm always happy to take business from libertarians. Uh, but we'll see what I'm up to. I'm up to a number of things, not, not just one thing. Yeah. Uh, and if I, my latest piece is on Father Sadowski. Uh, I think you'll, uh, I think if people go to that today, you'll see what I wrote on the 96th birthday. It would have been his 96th birthday of a very much underrated, under overlooked uh, libertarian Christian, James A. Sadowski. And there'll be links to my 
Sadowski page on my old site, which you, which every major article in philosophy and, 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 and economics is available. I used to type them up. I used to type up the articles when I didn't have a scanner, and you can uh, read those articles for free until the, the copyright cops come after me. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> AnthonyTFlood.com, and you can you can contact me there and. I hope I hope people will sign up. If they like what they see there, they'll sign up, as I will now do for LCI, uh, and, and be alerted to when I have a new post. Well, thanks, Anthony, for joining us today and to talk about your book. And also, I really appreciate your thoughts on human flourishing. And uh, I, I think um, maybe, maybe in a year after we have talked about human flourishing uh, for this entire year, we'll see whether or not I could convince you to be more optimistic. <laughs> I would need. I need that therapy. I really look forward to that. Thank you. <laughs> All right. It's been a wonderful, uh, wonderful, just about an hour or so, and I really got a lot out of it. I appreciate the opportunity. Oh, well, good. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.